Hey everyone, welcome to the Her Head and Films podcast. I'm your host, my name is Caitlin. In this podcast, I share my personal musings, my personal thoughts and feelings about art house and world cinema for the most part. Um, if you're new to the podcast and you don't know who I am, as I said, my name's Caitlin. I consider myself a writer, a blogger, a dreamer. Um, I really love literature, art, poetry, and in the last few years I've developed a really intense love for cinema. And I created this podcast because I live in a rural area where there's not really any kind of cinephile culture. There's not an art house cinema where I live. Um, so I needed an outlet where I could really talk about films and dig into them and and share my passion and my love for them and so that's why i created this podcast if you're wondering about the name her head in films it came from an email that i sent a friend a few years ago and i was really obsessed with films at the time and i wrote to her i said that my head isn't in the clouds my head is in films and it was the perfect phrase i think to describe how I engage with films and how I'm sort of always thinking about them and how they really sort of merge with my life. Um, I do have a Patreon for this podcast. You can find it at patreon.com slash herheadandfilms. Patreon is a place where people who create content, you know, podcasts, videos, writing, it's where their supporters can financially, um, help sustain them and support them i do have to pay to keep the podcast going so if you would like to support the podcast help sustain it i have different um, levels that you can donate and you can get different things you can recommend a film to me and i'll review it you can get access to special exclusive content including her head and films extra which is these sort of smaller, um, shorter podcasts that I do. I recently did one about um, memories I had of Blockbuster, the video rental place. I was talking about my memories of that place. So that's something that you can unlock. At another level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I would like to take the time to do my shout outs to um, Jesse, Carolyn, and Michelle. Thank you for being patrons. Thank you for being supporters of the podcast. I really do appreciate it. And I really do appreciate all three of you. And um, so thank you, Jesse, Carolyn, and Michelle. And just at the outset, I do want to say that anything, any film that I talk about in my podcast, but particularly today, there will be spoilers that I do go in to pretty a lot of detail about the film. And so if you haven't seen it and that bothers you, then just be aware of it that there would there will be spoilers in this episode. So today's episode is about um, I, Daniel Blake, which was directed by Ken Loach and came out in 2016. This was also for my patrons. Um, at the beginning of each month, I do I'm going to do a poll and I'm going to let my patrons um decide what I review so the first week in each month and so I Daniel Blake won the poll and so I decided to watch it and it hit really close to the bone for me really close to home 
and I really want to talk about it. I think it's an important film. Um, it won the Palme d'Or in 2016 uh, at the Cannes Film Festival. And it's a gut punch. It's a gut punch of a film. It's an important film. And even as I speak, I'm debating about how much I'm going to share about my personal relationship with this film and why it means so much. Like, I'm still wondering what I, how much I should share because it hit very close to home for me. It takes place in Britain. Um, and I do want to say I watched this on July 4th of this year, 2017. And I've been um, reflecting on July 4th. And I didn't feel much of anything yesterday. Um, yesterday was July 4th. I didn't post anything on social media like Happy July 4th. It's I don't like the nationalism of this holiday or the ridiculous patriotism. I don't feel much of anything for this country. And I know I'm probably being controversial to say that. You know, I think a lot of people maybe who are outside the U.S. would say, oh, you don't know how good you have it and things like that. But um, as a working class person, as someone who's gone through poverty, as someone who has lived 20-some years now, I mean, I'm 27, without health care or health insurance, someone who has been subjected to a lot of suffering and indignity. Um, I just don't have a lot of love for this country. I'm just going to be honest in the outset. And um, I don't really... I don't... Like I said, I just don't feel anything. You know, I, I certainly don't feel pride... I mean, we bomb other countries, we kill thousands, if not, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. We're one of the bloodiest, most violent countries, you know, the world has ever seen in terms of our military and the wars that we've started. And it just, it makes me sick. It grosses me out. And then to see how we treat our own citizens, you know, and to see what we do, it just, it upsets me. And, um... So it's it's I think it's pretty interesting that I chose to watch I Daniel Blake on July 4th because I think this film the ending especially asks what it means to be a citizen of a country and what is a country's um responsibility to its citizens you know I sort of think John F Kennedy's little speech gets quoted way too much about you know ask not what your country can do for you but what you can do for your country well I believe there are basic things that a country should do for its own citizens and that's not happening here you know we're, we're not a humane country we're just not and um we let the rich we let corporations you know we let those people have so much power and just do whatever they want to people to people's lives to their bodies and it makes me really it causes a lot of despair for me personally so i daniel blake it's about a man named daniel blake he's 59 years old he's recently had a heart attack he is a widower and he's unable to work because of his heart attack and his doctors have told him he should not be working he's not in the physical shape to do it even though he's had this heart attack, he's in rehab for it, and his doctors say that he's not ready to go back to work. 
he has to navigate the British bureaucracy welfare system. I'm just going to use welfare system. There may be different words used in Britain than the U.S. Like here we have things called food stamps. We have things called um, unemployment benefits. We have things called social security, you know, and disability um, benefits. So obviously the jargon is different, but it's basically welfare. It's the state, you know, providing you money for whatever reason. So he has to, his heart attack and his inability to work precipitates his entry into the welfare system, into the bureaucracy of it. He has to meet this, what is called, I guess, a healthcare professional who does an assessment of him and asks him various questions. You know, can you stand for a certain amount of time? Can you talk to people? Can you just ask all kinds of questions? Of course, the whole time he's saying, well, yeah, I can do those things, but I just had a heart attack. I'd like to talk about my heart. But she just keeps on with her questions. It's it's a very dehumanizing experience for him. It's a frustrating experience as well. She deems him, or whoever, the it, they're called the decision maker. We don't know who these people are, how they got this designation. They deem him fit for work. Even though his doctors say he can't work, even though he's, he, he has documentation that he's had a heart attack. So what he has to do is, while he's waiting to do his appeal, because he wants to appeal that decision, obviously, now he has to transition to another aspect of the welfare system, which is finding a job. So this would be like the unemployment benefit system here in the United States, where when you're out of work, you have to go, and in order to get you know, money each week or to get any kind of benefits while you're out of work, you have to prove that you're looking for work, that you're doing certain things and meeting those demands. And so he has to do that, but he's in a catch-22 because he can't really accept a job because, um, because of his health. He can't handle it, but he has to say that he's looking for work in order to get money so that he can keep his apartment and, and have food and, and survive. Um, a lot of the stuff with this bureaucracy is digital too. And he's like 59, as I said, he's not used to computers. He's not, he has like a flip phone. You know, he doesn't even have a smartphone. He doesn't have a computer in his house. He has to go to the library to use, um, to use their computers and, and to use the internet. He doesn't really understand the system. You know, instead of just talking to someone or filling out a form, it's been turned into this even more dehumanizing process where you just go online and, and you do all of that. While he's at one of the um, centers where he's having to, um, I guess one of the welfare centers or whatever, where he's talking to the the people that work in these places, the bureaucrats, I guess you could call them. He meets um, a young woman named Katie. Um, she's a few minutes late to an appointment and the woman won't even talk to her because she is, uh, because she is late. She, Katie gets very upset about it. She has two children. She's just moved. It takes place in Newcastle. She just moved to Newcastle from London because that's the only place where I guess she could get public housing. 
she had had to leave her previous um, apartment because she had complained to the landlord about, I think, like a drip, drippy ceiling or something like that. And the landlord got upset and he kicked her out with her two kids. And so they had been living in a hostel for about two years until they were able to get this public housing. But it's in Newcastle. She doesn't know anybody. She's she's completely sort of lost, really, because she's not from that area. And so what happens is that Daniel meets her there and they really start to create a friendship. It's not sexual. You know, it's not anything like that. She's probably like 30. I mean, maybe she's in her late 20s. He He's very affectionate with her and he starts to help her around her apartment. And sometimes he'll babysit the kids. And um, so it's like this really, it's like this really sweet friendship that um that starts to form and Katie's really struggling she's a single mom she cleans houses she tries to um promote herself she puts things in people's mailboxes like you know if you need a cleaner um and things like that so she's definitely trying to find a job you know to support her kids but she's really struggling to do that and um a very interesting part of this film is when Daniel is forced, because he has to start searching for a job, there are certain things he needs. He needs a CV, which I would think is sort of like a resume. We would call it a resume here in the United States, I think. And so he has to go to this ridiculous um, this workshop. It's mandatory. The woman at the welfare place makes him go. And, um, so he has to go to this ridiculous CV workshop where basically this guy in a suit just kind of like acts like it's all within your power if you get a job. You know, you have to make your CV stand out. You have to... The onus is completely on you, even though, you know, for each position, dozens, if not hundreds of people could be applying. I mean, how in the world are you going to make your CV stand out? Like, I mean, Daniel kind of speaks up and he kind of says, well, it sounds like, you know, there's not enough jobs for people, you know. And, of course, the guy gets really offended. And But Daniel's right, like... And this part of the film really reminded me of a French film that I saw last year called Measure of a Man. It's by Stephen Brise. It's actually on Netflix, or it was on Netflix at one time. But it's about a French man who lost his job and is trying to get another job and having to navigate sort of this new system that's been created for people to get jobs where, you know, you don't just walk in a place anymore and say hey are you hiring can I have an interview can I have um, a job application that doesn't happen anymore a lot of it's outsourced to staffing agencies um, so rarely will you go into a place and just say hey can I apply for a job here they're gonna tell you go online you need to do the application online 
And there's all these workshops that I guess if you're trying to get government benefits that they make you go to. And in Measure of a Man, he has to go to these workshops. And he has to, you know, workshops like for a job interview, like all the things you should say and how you should be prepared and things like that. And it's so condescending the way these workers are treated. And it really it really reminds us how workers have really become expendable and disposable. They're just told all this crap about interview skills and resumes, and they're made to just run in circles trying to impress these employers. And it's total BS. It doesn't work. It, it's just a way for then for people to say, well, if you can't find a job, it's your fault. Your resume wasn't flawless. Your job interview wasn't perfect. You didn't say the perfect words. You didn't do the right things. It's, it is like you have to bend over backwards for a place to hire you. And these employment places have all kinds of invasive tactics like drug testing. And sometimes they'll even do a credit check. And just all kinds of invasive things of people. And who's there to protect anyone? Like, the state lets them do it. I mean, they can just do whatever they want, and you're just not even a person to them. And so Daniel really experiences the dehumanization of this process. Um, you know, the employers have all the powers, and workers have none. Job seekers have none. And it's just, I've had experience with this stuff, and I think we all have, where you have no power. And it's all on you if you don't get a job. Well, your resume wasn't perfectly done and you didn't say the right thing in the job interviews. Like, give me a break, <laughs> please. It is such bullcrap. I hate it. There's a really powerful scene where Daniel accompanies Katie to a local food bank. And up to this point, you can tell that Katie has been skipping meals, that she has been making sure that her kids have food before she has food. And it's this heartbreaking scene. The, the line for the food bank is out the door and down the block. It's a very long line. And um, so Katie and Daniel get there and her kids are with her too. She brings her two kids. And so they're going around and the woman's putting different food and stuff in the bag for Katie. The people at the food bank are very nice. They're much nicer than, say, the people at the welfare uh, center, um, the government center that they had to deal with, the, who were very, you know, um, harsh, you know, very difficult to deal with. And um, at one point, Katie, she just... She's so hungry that she just pulls off the top of the can. And it's like tomato sauce, I think. It's like pasta sauce. And she pours it into her hand and then just shoves the tomato sauce into her mouth. That's how hungry she is. And it was like I, I actually cried when when I watched that. And... She starts to apologize. She starts to cry because she did that. She says, what she says, 
she just said she was so hungry and then she says something like I feel like I'm going under and then Daniel tells her he tells her this isn't your fault you're doing the best you can as a single mother this is not your fault and you know watching this scene brought up a lot of things from my own life um, a few years ago I graduated college in 2014 I went from 2010 to 2014 majored in English and women's and gender studies and I do have a Bachelor of Arts degree and I actually had a lot of professors who told me you know you should go into graduate school I had um, I had one professor tell me that I was one of the best writers she had ever read and I had another professor who had actually been trained at Harvard and he told me you know you really have something you know I, I had written a paper about Mrs. Dalloway and Septimus Smith and um and he had really praised it very highly and he said you know you really should you know pursue it pursue it further pursue your education further into graduate school and I remember in 2014 like a few weeks before I graduated I had another professor you know she stopped me and she said what are you doing after college are you going to graduate school you know and at that time my mom's husband had lost his job and things were really bad and he was on unemployment benefits and he was looking for work I didn't have a job at the time I was just focusing on school focusing on college getting my degree but I was very aware that there was no way I was gonna be able to go to graduate school that I mean I hadn't even planned on it but just the fact that he had lost his job and that things were really difficult I knew that it just wasn't gonna be an option and so it's it's still not an option I don't know if I will ever go to graduate school I don't even know what I would study honestly or what I would do with it and I'm already in so much debt from college and so I knew that once I graduated I was gonna have to find a job and um so it took me a while it, it took a while for me to get a job and it didn't last very long it was through a temp agency it was it only lasted a few months it was a temporary job no benefits you know a lot of you probably know how that goes and so um and so a time came about 2015 where both my mom's husband and I we were out of work you know my mom has health issues so she's not able to work and um it just it was a really scary time like unemployment benefits by that time where I lived had been slashed you got them for maybe three months which is not enough to find a job it's like it I mean studies have shown it sometimes it can take you up to six months to find a job but our state was controlled by Republicans and they had changed um, the unemployment the amount of time that you could get it and so we were in a really dire situation and what we were getting with from the unemployment benefits was not enough and we had to go to a church to get food and 
we had to go several months and um and it was degrading honestly and the food that we were given i talked about this in another episode but if you haven't heard that one i'll just say it again we got food that was inedible basically it, um there was meat that was just wrapped up in cellophane you know how when you go to the grocery store and it'll have a label on it what the meat is the expiration date all these things that you need to make sure that food is safe was not on this stuff this was just there was just a random glass jar of pickles it was food that didn't go together the bread was hard as a rock none of it hardly was edible to be honest we had to throw we got like a box of food it wasn't enough for three people it, it wasn't enough it wasn't gonna last we had to throw most of it away it was like we were being handed just whatever was left over the slops you know what I mean it made me feel so worthless it made me feel like I wasn't even worth feeding that I wasn't even a human being worthy of food that's how it made me feel and it has haunted me ever since like living in poverty struggling financially the different experiences I've had it has haunted me the shame of it the degradation of it the dehumanization of it like <laughs> and most of the food had to be thrown out we got a few pastries I think that we ate and I still remember at night I would like I would watch like baking shows I would watch like food shows um, and I would be so hungry when I was watching them and and it's like seeing that food it would like seeing that food it would like it would make me more hungry but it's like in a way I vicariously lived through this food that I saw and um it was just I still remember it it breaks my heart but so when I saw that scene with Katie I just remembered that I remembered the hunger that I felt you know when I was watching these baking shows and but at the same time the baking show was like a comfort to me because I really loved the people on it and you know and like I said it was like this vicarious thing you know honestly we just rarely talk about the psychological toll of poverty of needing help of having to beg and grovel and really navigate these dehuman these dehumanizing bureaucratic systems you know and um you know going to that church for food it was degrading it was difficult and honestly I'm terrified of having to go through it again I live with a lot of worry and a lot of fear that my financial situation could change at any time because I know that things can change I have had several this is not the first time this had happened to me um, I've gone through several periods in my life where I was food insecure where I didn't have you know what I needed and um, I've really learned that all of us 
all of us are like one illness or one job loss away from losing everything or, or losing a great deal. And I've lived that multiple times. And um, I just, I don't wish it on anybody. It's very difficult. And um, it can happen to any time, anybody. It really can. And, um, and if you don't think it can happen to you, you're wrong. Because it can. And it happened to me. In 2003, when I was like 12 or 13, well, I would have been 14. Yeah. My dad got sick. My dad got hurt at work. And his health started to decline. And our lives changed. And, you know, he had steady employment. You know, we were okay. We weren't great. But we were making it. You know, we were surviving. And he got sick. And his health was never the same. And we lost a lot. And a lot happened. And it taught me that we are all vulnerable you are just one you're one illness away or one job loss away and you could be that person that's homeless i've you know i've faced that you could be homeless you could be hungry it can happen to you it really can and a lot of people live with this idea that it can't happen to them and maybe for some people that's true you know, if you're ultra rich, you know, but if you're just middle class or you're working class, it absolutely can happen to you. I've had to make really difficult decisions in my life, you know. I wasn't going to go to graduate school. I had to work. I had to get a job. I had to help my family. And I had to make that decision, you know. So it's, it's very real. And the people, people like Daniel and Katie, they also have to live with the stigma of their poverty and of their needing help. You know, at one time, Daniel gets a call back from a person that he had given his resume to. And the guy's like, oh, well, I'll, you know, he's going to offer Daniel a job and Daniel has to explain I can't take the job. And then the guy's like, well, why did you give me the resume? And Daniel has to say, so I can get my benefits. And then the guy just explodes and just accuses Daniel of like leeching off the government, of being, you know, lazy, doesn't want to do a day's work or whatever. So, and that immediately took me back to an experience like when my dad got sick. And he's dead now. He died in 2006. A lot of you who listen know that he's gone. Um, so he went through a lot near the end of his life. And I don't talk about it because I can't. Because it's it's excruciating, personally. And so he got sick. And he couldn't work anymore. This was in 2003. He had to get on disability which is a, a government program for people who are not able to work. You have to go through a lot to get disability. It can take years sometimes for you to get it. You have got to navigate this bureaucracy that is set up. Going to doctors, going to different appointments, 
you know, filling out forms, it's, it's a huge thing. And it can take, like I said, years. And it took him, I think, about a year or more. Um, and he had to go to this particular doctor. And I'm not sure why or who this doctor was. I wasn't there at the time. My mom, my mom was there with my dad. And I think they were telling the doctor, you know, we need you to fill out some kind of form or whatever because you know my dad was trying to get disability and the doctor he got really ugly and I guess he didn't like being told you know that we need you to do this for him and he said something like he said yeah I know you want to get your big check and um tore me up when they told me that that a doctor had said that you know oh yeah I know you want to get your big check yeah, it was a real big check. <laughs> we were living in poverty, you know. It, it wasn't, it was unreal that somebody in that position of power would say something like that to a, a sick man. A man, my father, who was hurting and who was suffering and struggling. Because my dad played football when he was in high school. My dad loaded trucks. He loaded 18-wheeler trucks with boxes and uh, and furniture and all kinds of stuff. My dad was very active. He was very healthy most of his life. And he got hurt and his life changed and he changed and our family changed. And he died. So and it affected him. It absolutely affected him to lose his health, to need help, to be treated in a dehumanizing way by people. And um, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to share that, you know, if I was going to go into all that about my dad. But I think it's important for people to know that this is real, that people go through this every day. And my dad is just one person that went through it. And Daniel Blake, this character of Daniel Blake, who represents a lot of other people, he went through it too. And this is the world that we're living in, you know. Um, so it, it's very real and... You see that in Katie and Daniel and the decisions that they have to make. At one point, Katie has to shoplift sanitary napkins because she can't get those at the food bank. She she can't get them, and so she has to shoplift. And it's just, she's in a very difficult situation. Daniel has to, Daniel has to sell his furniture to make money. Katie's daughter's shoes are falling apart and she doesn't really know how she's going to get her children, her, her daughter, another pair of shoes. The daughter says that people at school heard about the food bank incident and what happened and she's getting made fun of for that. And it just sort of reinforces this, this disdain and this hatred for the poor and the working class. And often that judgment can come from other poor and working class people. It's not just the rich that have those negative thoughts about poor people. It's 
it's the people themselves or their neighbors or there's a great deal of judgment there's a great deal of blame that happens um and it's just it's so terrible you know by the end of this film daniel is someone who has really been broken down by this system and he has done everything he can to try and navigate it and there's this really wonderful you know scene where he goes outside the welfare center and he spray paints the side of the building because he wants to get his appointment for his appeal um so that he can appeal the decision that they said he was fit for work and he writes on there he says i daniel blake demand this appointment he calls it an art installation which i love because when we think of an art installation you know we think of the upper classes we think of the elite but here is art that's on the street here is art that is saying something and i think the film is the kind of art that's saying something too and in the end daniel dies he gets his appeal he gets to go to an appointment and plead his case but he goes in the bathroom and he collapses and he dies he's been so broken down by the system you know and at his funeral katie reads the the words that he was going to say at the appeal um and it ends with i daniel blake am a citizen nothing more and nothing less and so, as I said, I watched this on July 4th, and it's actually very, I think, serendipitous that I did that. Because I think this ending is really asking us, in this time of rampant, unfettered, unregulated, almost, capitalism and globalization, what does it mean to be a citizen? What are we entitled to as citizens? How is this idea of citizenship wielded against others who are seen as not citizens? When we think about the refugee crisis and people who are not seen as worthy of basic rights or worthy of help or benefits, you know, what do we expect from our government? You know, and you see a lot of movements springing up, you know, and socialism is coming back. And I do consider myself a socialist. And you see more political engagement, especially among millennials who are anti-capitalist, who a lot of them believe we need a, a living wage, we need the fight for 15, we need universal health care, we need to deal with racism, we need to deal with sexism. And so this film is just, is asking so many questions about that, about why are we treating one another this way why are we allowing the people who are powerless to be treated like this and why is this has this bureaucracy been built up i mean as he as daniel was trying to navigate it i thought of franz kafka of course who did a lot of writing about bureaucracy and hated bureaucracy and i think maybe he saw the potential for the dehumanizing effects of it that um you know it's just you know daniel is trying to navigate this world that is just impossible and it's purposely made impossible i think 
because if you can frustrate people, if you can make it difficult for them, then they'll give up and then they won't ask for their benefits and they won't ask for help. It's a good deterrent, isn't it? To make it as complicated as possible. But you know, I do have to wonder though, what the reception to this film would have been if the main character was not a white male, but a black woman or a person of color. When we think of citizen, that is often very racially coded. And often the reason that more government benefits haven't been given out, especially here in the U.S., has been because whites do not want people of color to be given benefits. There is this whole, it's, it's the whole racist and racial dimension to it of like when Reagan was in power and the welfare queens and this image of a black woman became this image of welfare even though I think 70% of of the people that receive welfare are white because white people are the majority of the population but a lot of arguments against it have been coded they've been racially coded so they won't say well we don't want to give these benefits because black people will get them but that's what they mean is that black people are leeching off the government that it's the whole Bill Clinton welfare to work thing, you know. And so that has often been a way that the right and the conservatives and the Republicans have argued against expanding um, social benefits and the social security, the social safety net, because they have been able to rouse this fear in white people that, you know, people of color are going to get it. And God forbid, you know, a person of color get any kind of, you know, help or government benefits. I mean, it's just insane to me. Um, but racism is very much a part of this. And I just wonder if a black woman had been the face of this film, how the reception would have been. You know, Daniel is seen as a good person, as a hardworking white man who's worked his whole life you know, he's the right kind of person who is worthy and deserving of these benefits and deserving of our sympathy. Whereas, say, a single black mother, I don't think would have received the same level of sympathy. So while I really love this film, I don't think you can deny that if the main character was a black woman or a black man even, or a person of color, it's hard to argue that it wouldn't have gotten a different reception because of the racism, both in Britain and here in the United States, and the prejudice against, uh, and the stereotype, stereotypes about black people that persist <clears throat> even now. You know, I think when this film won the Palme d'Or, it was a bit controversial. I mean, I've seen some of the reviews of the film that didn't didn't like it so much because it wasn't subtle enough or it felt like it was a didactic film, you know, a film that was trying to educate you or, or teach you a lesson, you know. <clears throat> and I think this film wears its heart on its sleeve, 
you know and i think some people are uncomfortable with that they want something more subtle something more artsy i guess but it wears its heart on its sleeve it has a message it has something it's trying to say has something it's railing against and i'm okay with that you know i i'm totally fine with that honestly i think a film that provides a humane and passionate defense of marginalized and maligned people is a welcome thing i am absolutely fine with this film wearing its heart on its sleeve i don't need it to be subtle it's fine it's fine with me it's a very realistic and authentic film and i think if anyone says that this is not real life that it's too simplistic that these people are made to be saintly or these people are made to be too good or or that this doesn't really happen you know he's just trying to he's just exaggerating things to get people to feel some kind of emotion i would say this is real life you know if any reviewer says different i would argue it's because this is not their reality or this is not part of their reality but it is the reality of millions of people including myself so i see myself and daniel and katie and i see people that i've known i see them in daniel and katie too um this is a very authentic representation i think of the working class the working poor the poor um it absolutely looks at the devaluation the degradation of the working class under austerity under very conservative measures <clears throat> you know when republicans here in the u.s or the tories in the united kingdom are, are in power and they cut back government benefits and they implement austerity measures this is the outcome of it you know and a huge amount of bureaucracy it's a film that really confronts that dehumanizing system and says look at these people they are people they are humans they deserve help you know something is broken here something is wrong and this film i think has really touched a lot of people and i think it's woken some people up you know it's a film about friendship and solidarity class solidarity you know daniel becomes friends with katie and looks out for her they try to look out for each other and help each other he's also friends with um his neighbor and they try to look out for each other and be there for one another um so i really loved that it was about friendship and solidarity it's about the psychological toll of poverty and of having to ask for help of it's also about um the way in which the state controls people and how when you're poor especially you come under the surveillance of the state you are really your life is invaded i mean i think of here in the u.s these discussions about food stamps about what people should be able to buy with their food stamps and there's been a lot of backlash about well i don't think somebody with food stamps should be buying a birthday cake or i don't think someone with food stamps should be buying lobster well 
I've used food stamps. I've been on food stamps. I will I will be open about it. I didn't get very much. Um and I don't think anybody should be telling me what to buy with them. You know? I certainly don't care what anybody else gets with their food stamps. You have no idea what people are going through. And that candy bar that they bought, or that birthday cake they bought, or that lobster they bought, might mean something to them. And it's, But everybody thinks that they have the right to tell poor people how to eat and what to eat. Now, what do we do? When poor people get sick or they eat bad. Well, we say, oh, well, why are poor people eating like this? Why are poor people not eating vegan? Why are pe poor people, oh, poor people just eat the worst things. They eat pork skins and they eat potato chips and they eat all the worst things, right? But then those same people, the, the you know, these the poor people, but if they buy lobster, oh, how dare they? How dare they buy lobster with food stamps? So if they try to get healthy food, or maybe what's considered more expensive food, well, how dare they? So you can't win. You cannot win as, as someone who's getting government benefits. Because either way, you will be judged. You will be judged. And instead of people judging the companies and the corporations that put people in poverty like Walmart that pays minimum wage, you know, Walmart where a lot of the workers are on food stamps themselves. And then where do they go and spend their food stamps? At Walmart. So Walmart actually directly profits from the poverty of their workers. Well, instead of people getting upset about that, getting upset at Walmart, the CEO, the government that allows them to just do whatever they want, no, we we blame the Walmart worker. Well, how dare they go buy a birthday cake with the food stamps that they get? I mean, this is insanity. It is insanity. I guess it's easier to just point the finger at people and say, oh, you're bad. You know, it's your fault that you're poor. Instead of looking at this immense system, you know, this capitalist system, of corporations and companies that wield immense power in our lives that get to tell us if we can go to the bathroom or not when we're on the job that that control everything that we do and every move we make and then the government becomes a form of surveillance too you know instead of critiquing those things we just point the finger at at people and we say well you're to blame no you're not to blame our lives are precarious our lives are vulnerable and it's scary i think for some people to confront that to say i could be in an automobile accident tomorrow and my health could be gone or i could be hurt on the job and have to go on disability or I could have a heart attack the way Daniel Blake did. Or somebody in my family could die, you know, like my father died. And an income is lost and we can't. And now I'm a single mother with children and I can't survive. 
Anything at any time could happen to you and you could be on the receiving end. Or something could happen to your home, a natural disaster, and you could be homeless. Or you could just get behind. You could lose your job and you could get behind on your apartment payments or your house payments and then you're homeless. And now you are them. They're no longer the, it no longer happens to other people. Now it happens to you. And, you know, I don't know how to cope with all the things that I've been through. The death of my father, poverty, health issues, depression, anxiety. I've been through a lot in my life. And I talk about it a lot on this podcast. And I don't talk about it to get your pity or to get your sympathy or to make you feel bad for me. I talk about it because it might help someone else to know that here's someone else who's been through difficult things and you're not to blame and you're not alone and I'm struggling just like you are I'm trying to survive just like you are and I watch films and I read books and that's how I keep going you know I talk about these things because I just have to talk about them because I don't want to be silent about them and I think that's what this film is doing. It's saying we can't be silent about this anymore. About the ways in which people are being harmed and dehumanized in this system. Under capitalism. Under austerity. Under conservative, you know, under these conservative governments. We can no longer be silent about this. Because this has real world consequences. This has life and death consequences. And, um, it can happen to anybody, anybody. And often these things are tied to disability and to able-bodiedness. And I think we need to have a discussion about that too, about how dis how disability can happen to anyone and how, you know, we're just obsessed with work and hard work, but whose bodies can do that work? And what if your body can't do that work? What do you do? And why is our worth as human beings based on the work that we do or how much we produce or what kind of job we have? Why is that the way we are judged as people? You know, why is it not just that we are people and we deserve to be fed and we deserve to be clothed and we deserve to have access to water and we deserve to have a home and we deserve to have health care and there are basic human rights that we all deserve. And it shouldn't matter if you can work or not. Or how much you can work. Or how hard you work. Because sometimes somebody with depression can't work quite as hard. Or what's hard work for them may not be hard work for you. So, you know, Daniel Blake is someone who went from being able-bodied to being not able-bodied. To being disabled. So all of this intersects class, race, gender. Look at Katie. She's a single mom. Things are much harder for her. She's forced to do things she doesn't want to do. Poverty is different for her than it is for Daniel. So disability, race, class, gender, all of these things intersect with these issues.
No, it's not a subtle film, but it's a great film. And I think it deserved the Palm d'Or, and I think it opened some people's eyes about what's happening. And like I said, if there's people that say this is not real, or this doesn't happen, or oh, they're exaggerating, or oh, this is not true, it may not be their reality, but it's a lot of people's realities. And a lot of people are being affected by what's happening now under capitalism, under globalization, under neoliberalism, which is basically a fancy word for saying, you know, privatizing everything, you know. Real human lives are at stake in all of this, you know. So I'm really glad I watched this film. I'm glad I watched it on July 4th. I think it was a perfect antidote for the, that holiday for me. And um, it is just this great big scream is what this film is. It's just this scream for justice and this scream for the common person and the dignity and respect of all people that all people should receive. Okay? That's, that's what it is to me. It is this great big scream for justice and for humanity and compassion and decency. And for people to be protected by their government. People to be taken care of by their government. I think all the time about how we can make a more humane world. And a more humane country. And I would like to be part of, as much as I can, the struggle. And, and the the process of trying to realize that. Should have already been realized, you know. But we're still fighting. And we just have to keep fighting as much as we can in whatever capacity that we can. But I'm going to stop there. I've talked long enough. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.